Europe is rushing to LNG as the substitute. Even Germany, which is the biggest gas consumer in Europe, they are now building out five, six floating terminals in order to import LNG. People are building uh, import terminals in, in Italy, in France, in the Netherlands. But the problem is we are building all these import terminals in Europe, but we are not buying any more LNG. So basically, the strategy is to build import terminals and buy LNG in the spot market, driving up the price. And when you are sourcing from the spot market, you're not really underpinning new supply of LNG because nobody is building LNG export terminals on speculation. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome back to Winter is Coming on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Ostein Kalaklev, CEO at Flex LNG and Executive Chairman at Avance Gas. He'll be sharing his unique perspective on the European energy crisis and what it means for the LNG industry. Hello, Ostein. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Hi, good to be back here. Yeah, when you were here with us last year, and I think it was about this time of year, you were discussing uh, a European energy crisis, a natural gas crunch, and now it's a year later, and we've got an energy crisis in Europe that's just on a whole nother level. And I want to get your perspective on it from inside the LNG shipping industry. You know, we were talking with Susan Sackmar last week and you know, noted the staggering bottlenecks in the European LNG market right now. There's a shortage of ships with shipping rates near $500,000 a day. There's also a shortage of floating regasification terminals to bring LNG into the natural gas pipeline system. And I've seen rates near $200,000 a day. $200,000 must be last, last month. <laughs> last month, it's come down. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could put these numbers into some context and what do they mean for the LNG industry and for European consumers? Yeah, it's a, it's a broad question. So thanks, thanks. Uh, yeah, we actually, we were discussing the European energy crisis a year ago. So that was uh, a long way ahead of the invasion of uh, Ukraine in late February. So. So actually, the, 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 the kind of the energy crisis started building, I would say, late summer 2021 in Europe. We saw that the inventories has, hadn't been built up. Uh, and actually, at that time, also the, the Asians were also busy buying LNG and it, it, the resulting in kind of the LNG prices really spiking up and the Russians hadn't built up their storage levels in, in Europe. And of course, now today we understand the reason why they, <laughs> they didn't do it. So we really saw in November the, the kind of the gas market ending up in a crisis situation a couple of months ahead of the invasion. So uh, once you had the invasion, of course, things went ballistic. Despite all these problems, Europe's been actually very fortunate because we have had a lack of gas in, in, in Europe or, or globally, but with the shutdowns in, in China, so China has been really pulling back, imports are down more than 20%. So if somebody were telling you that, okay, Europe is going to gobble up all the LNG cargoes and China is going to slow down 20%, you would think that the shipping market would be terrible. And actually, we saw something very similar in 2019. 2019, you actually had very healthy volume 
uh, growth in the LNG market. They grew 35 million tons. And Europe bought 33 of that 35 million tons. And that really dragged down the shipping market in 2019 because you had shorter sailing distances. Uh, and China's economy cooled down in 2019 given the trade war with Trump. So this year we have seen something similar. Actually, volume growth has been a lot less and the Chinese demand have <laughs> faltered much more than we have ever seen. And this resulted in the LNG shipping market being actually terrible in Q1. First time ever we've seen the indexes, the freight indexes being negative. So actually you <laughs> people didn't pay you. The rates were less than zero adjusted for, for fuel consumption. But then once the Ukraine war happened, of course, the risk premium in the market increased. People didn't want to be short ships. So freight rates started to go up after, after that happening 24th of February. And they went up a lot until another event happened, which was the Freeport explosion. And at that time, gas prices in US was becoming very expensive. $10 per million BTU. It sounds, sounds cheap in Europe, but in, in US it's <laughs> quite expensive. And people were asking about export limitation. And once that explosion happened in Freeport, US gas prices fell 20% overnight. This also resulted in the shipping market becoming weak because Freeport is a pretty big export terminal, 15 million tons, that's 15 to 18 cargoes a month. So suddenly you have a lot of ships coming open in the market and really drag down the, the shipping market. And then now uh, with Freeport seeming to be starting up again for some cargoes, at least partial in, in November, that's really blown up the spot market again. So you were mentioning $200,000 per day, but actually it's more like $400,000 per day for freight these days. So it's it's uh, it's the strongest freight market ever. But actually, when you look at the product side, the product prices have come down a lot. So uh, JKM, actually today, I guess the most focus is on the TTF. So TTF is, let's call it $45. It's so volatile, so it's hard to peg the number, but let's call it $45. So that's down from 100 at the peak. Uh, however, with this flow of cargoes into Europe, you have congestion issues. There's not enough regas capacity in Europe. So actually, the, having a slot at the regas terminal today is valued as much as the terminal. And I asked the cargo, because the cargo is $45 per million BTU, but you have to discount the LNG at around $20, $25 in order to get capacity at, at the regas terminal. That's crazy. In addition to that, we have Intramont Contango of 2 to $3. So some people actually see, where the, if I can sell my cargo next month, I will be making more money. So we, today, we have around 35 ships idling in floating storage, which is also tying up a lot of shipping capacity. And that's why the shipping market's been, just like the LNG market, incredibly volatile. And, and, and of course, very nice for those people ha who have either cargo or a ship. Right. And that volatility is just amazing. I, you did a, you really painted an incredible picture there of, you know, what it's been like the past few years and going from an incredibly tight market to a weak market and back and forth and the bottlenecks. And I was just curious, you know, how are you at Flex LNG navigating this moment and this set of market conditions? And like, what's a typical day like right now? It seems like there's so many things to deal with. Yeah, so our, our, our principal shareholder is John Fredriksen, who's probably the most successful shipping investor 
ever. <laughs> Shipping is incredibly difficult to invest in because of the volatility. So it's if you do something wrong, it's easy to get bankrupt. But he's been doing this for more than 60 years now, and he founded Golar LNG back in 2000. He sold out of Golar in 2014, and then bought into Flex and and all kind of investment thesis was to buy a lot of the new ships because there's been a big revolution on the shipping side. Actually, until 15 years ago, all the new buildings were steam turbine. So anybody who has some history recollection, they know that a steam turbine is not very efficient. But but, uh, the ships were actually built with steam turbine engines, and there are still 200 of them in the market. And then we eventually ended up with diesel engines, first medium speed and now slow speed. So our thesis at the time when we did the investments, mostly in 2017-18, was there's some new ships. They are 60% more efficient than the steam turbine ships. That, and that's a lot of money, you know, you're saving 60%. So we bought the ships when prices were low, basically 180, 185 million dollars per ship. The price of a ship today is 250 million. So there's certainly been inflation also on the shipping side because shipping is tight. Then when we took delivery of the ships starting 2018, 19, 20, 21, we took our last ships for delivery. We thought that we're going to just play the spot market here until we find a good shipping market. And then we're going to start fixing the ships on attractive long-term charters. So until 14th April last year, we had 13 ships and 13 spot ships. So everything was spot. Of course, that means that you really have to be on top of the market because of the volatility, because you can easily lose a lot of money. But even through COVID 2020, we managed to navigate and make money. And then starting April 14, we started fixing out ships on longer term charters. So we did the five first with Chenier, which is a big US exporter. And then we've actually in June this year, we fixed our last three ships for uh, one ship 10 years and two ships for each seven years with uh, a super major. So, so basically, we know it's a, it's a lot less volatile than it used to be. We have one ship on index linked to the spot market, but the remaining 12 ships are fixed on you know, typically three to uh, 10 year charters with the, the big players. So, so our volatility in our income now has gone down quite a lot right now, maybe sadly, because it would be fantastic having more spot exposure in this market. Right. And one of the other things that there's more exposure to, you know, you guys made the investments well ahead. Um, and one of the big risks to investment, I guess, is always a change in policymaker attitudes. And there's such an intense public and policymaker focus on the LNG market right now in Europe. You know, calls for price caps, new pricing benchmarks, people noting that discrepancy, you know, large discrepancy between the price of pipeline gas at TTF and LNG off the coast. And I was curious if the policy environment is affecting you and are you noting a change in how the industry is being viewed by policymakers and the broader public? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think five years ago, a lot of people were very bullish on LNG because you basically should substitute coal with natural gas and you can reduce your CO2 emissions 50-60%. But you know the reason why US started replacing coal with natural gas basically 100 years ago in the, the northeast of, the, of, of, of US was because of the pollution, not the CO2 emissions. <laughs> but if you burn coal, you have all the smog and all the ash and soot, which is basically destroying cities. And then... Uh, later on, we had the same development in Europe. 
not driven by CO2, but by cleaning up the air, local air pollution. And this is a huge problem. You know, every year, 10 million people are dying prematurely because of bad air pollution. And of course, coal is the big problem here because most of the people dying today from air pollution is people living in China and India. And they are the big coal consumers. So, but I think we have had a policy in Europe which has been very populistic short term and narrow thinking where we said, okay, we're going to go for coal to uh, wind and solar. <laughs> wind and solar in, is intermittent. And then, of course, we're not even going to have nuclear as well. So how are you going to create a kind of a energy system? You know, you can't build a lot of batteries for a big energy system. So they kind of just wanted to sidestep natural gas and just go directly for intermittent uh, renewables. And and this has created a lot of problems. You know, Dunkelflaute is a word which has become common now, which is a German word where it's not that much wind and there's not that much sun. And that, <laughs> so, and, and we had problems last year when the, the wind conditions in UK were very low as well. So, and I think people now realize also with the, the war in Ukraine, you need really need gas. We've seen what is if lack of gas is creating a lot of problems, heating, also the industrials. Agriculture, you know, fertilizers. <laughs> so, uh, so I think now, of course, Europe is rushing to LNG as the substitute. So, even Germany, which is the biggest gas consumer in Europe, they are now building out five, six floating terminals in order to import LNG. People are building uh, uh, import terminals in 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 Italy, in France, in the Netherlands. But the problem is, we are building all these import terminals in Europe, but we are not buying any more LNG. So basically the strategy is to build import terminals and buy LNG in the spot market, driving up the price and resulting in countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they're not able to source it anymore. And also when you are sourcing from the spot market, you're not really underpinning new supply of LNG because nobody is building LNG export terminals on speculation. These are multi-billion dollars investment. So the only way to build them is to have long-term contracts, 10, 15, maybe 20 years. But Europe is reluctant to do that because of the incoherent energy policies. Okay, let's solve this problem right now, buying in the spot market, but I'm not going to sign up for a 20-year LNG off-take contract because in 2042, I need to be 100% renewable. So so that is creating problems. And so we haven't solved anything. We have solved some, we are going to solve some bottlenecks on the, on the regas capacity side, but we are not solving the problem, which is the supply of gas. And that incoherent energy policy is so important because even in the shortest of short terms, right, there's been a huge policymaker focus on getting European natural gas storage filled before winter. But of course, even to just make it through this winter without painful shortages, we'll need a steady supply of gas. And I'm curious, like, what do you see in the market in terms of, you know, is there a, a sufficient reliable LNG flow scheduled for even this winter? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I think uh, Europe has been able to now fill up storage at 90%. That has happened because Russia has been flowing gas until recently. Europe has been buying up all the LNG spot. More than 70% of the US cargoes gone to Europe. Last year, it was like 20, 25%. Usually the cargoes from US, 70, 80% gone to Asia. No, 70, 80% are going to Europe. And that's happened because China have 
stopped importing because they of the COVID lockdowns. Th- those COVID lockdowns is not going to last forever. So once they are opening up, they are opening up gradually. Hong Kong, China is going to import more of the cargoes. So next year, so let's we are 90% now. We're going to draw down this very quickly. And once you're getting close to you know 30%, you people are starting will panicking. And of course, we've been lucky with the weather in October. Prognosis is we're not going to be as lucky as November and, and December. So once we're getting out of this winter, and of course, we have managed to get to 90% by also destroying a lot of demand in the industrial base because prices have been too high. But next year will be more challenging because you cannot rely on as much flow from Russia and also sourcing as much LNG as Europe has been doing this year next year might be more challenging because the Chinese might be back buying more volumes as well. And then there's not really a lot of new LNG coming to the market next year. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) supply of new LNG to the market will be pretty muted, both 23 and 24. And then from 25 onwards, you will see more uh, a pickup, especially from Qatar and other players. But that that LNG has been contracted to other people and not Europe because (laughs) Europe is not signing up any new off-taker agreements. Germany has signed up one LNG contract this year and it was pretty small as well. Well, And I want to come back to a point you had brought up with Europe's focus on spot contracting and what that's doing to the price and bidding away cargoes from other countries that would normally take them in. Now, you've said China, a lot of their reduction in demand was coming off of the COVID lockdowns, but there are many other countries in Asia, you know, hearing of blackouts in Bangladesh and shortages in Pakistan, where this European pull on LNG, which is helpful for Europe, but it's coming at the expense of other countries and other consumers that are now being priced out of the market. And I was curious, like how much you're seeing this impact. And I know you said, you know, a number of your ships are on a longer term charter at this point, but are you seeing a big change in shipping routes related to all this? Yeah. Yes, we do see that. We we see, of course, a lot more cargo, <laughs> cargoes are flowing into Europe, which actually have been beneficial in terms of having crew rotation. A lot of Asian countries still have limitations on, on getting people off and off on, on the ships. But <laughs> China, it's been impossible for, for more than two years now. So having, people, having the ships sailing US, Europe makes at least the crew rotation a lot mm-hmm. easier. We also see a lot of more ships idling either idling in floating storage or the ships are just idling in, which you would think is incredible when freight rates are $400,000. Why aren't people renting out the ship, collecting a lot of freight instead of idling the ship? But the reason is the value of the cargo is so substantial that even if you could make a lot of money, what if you don't get your ship back in time, you are losing out on the cargo economics, which is a lot more. So yeah, we do see that it is affecting the routes and actually ton mile has been dragged down a lot this year so if you lo- just looked at the ton mileage sailing distances you would think that the freight market would be terrible this year but the thing is that has adjusted for it is the ton time so the time and the speed has gone so time's gone up speed's gone down so that the, the, it takes more time to to load and discharge a cargo than usual because of the congestion issues and and the floating storage you know, I want to ask about the floating storage because, I mean, obviously LNG isn't like crude oil or, you know, sitting in a tanker. Like you have to keep this incredibly cold or it starts boiling off. Like 
how practical is it to have LNG sitting, you know, offshore in these tankers? Is is there a sufficient or significant loss of cargo? Yeah, it's right. Uh, it's you need to keep it at minus 162 centigrade, which is minus 260 Fahrenheit. And then, in order to keep it at atmospheric pressure, uh, you need to vent out the boil-off gas. And the boil-off really depends on the ship. Newer ships are a lot better insulation. So if you have like an old steam turbine, typically the boil-off rate is 0.2%. So every day, 0.2% of the cargo is lost in evaporation. So you need to take that pressure out of the tank, otherwise it builds up. So, But of course, you're not venting this, you're burning it. So you're using it as fuel, so it's very handy in terms of you have fuel on the, on the cargo tanks. Newer ships, so typically a new ship today would have a boil-off rate of somewhere around 0.05 to 0.85%. So the boil-off has been reduced... 50 to 80 percent and some of them also have relic systems so you are actually able to take the boil off that's coming off the tank and re-liquefy it and put it back to the tank of course it consumes some some power but that's that's also feasible we have partial relic system on on four or four ships and full relic on on three of the ships so so that makes it a bit more handy to, to storage them. But as you said, it's not like crude oil where you can be sitting for a long time. So so floating storage tend to be shorter in nature, typically one or two months. It's very rare you see ships idling with a cargo more than two months. So so that, the, so, so that is... And, and also because you either you need to basically flare the boil off in the funnel because you don't want to vent it since it's methane. So you then are just flaring it, which is you know, wasteful, or you need to use power to re-liquefy it. So that is kind of like an economic hurdle of having longer uh, storage time. Right. And I, I want to, you've brought up several times that uh, Europe is still pretty much keeping itself reliant on spot cargoes, the spot market for LNG, not undergoing longer term contracting in any significant way. Uh, in part because of what you said was the incoherent energy policy of believing, well, we're going to be off all fossil fuels, you know, in 10 years or 20 years or what have you. But I'd like to get some of your other thoughts on some of the longer term effects of this crisis on the nature of the LNG business. Do you see it as, you know, having a long term impact on the nature of the LNG trade? And like outside of Europe, is the structure and terms of contracts changing in response to the crisis? That's a good question. Talking about kind of the LNG spot market, that really developed in another crisis, which happened 11 years ago, which was the Fukushima. There was no spot market for LNG until Fukushima hit Japan. And then suddenly with all the nukes down, they really had a shortage. And that created the LNG spot market we know today. It was a bit different because it was portfolio player basically rebalancing the supply and, and pushing more LNG into Japan. So 11 years later, there's another crisis, which is the war in Ukraine, is you know changing the spot market of LNG where Europe is coming in. Whether it will change, uh, I, I think you know the people in Brussels are they are thinking very short term. That's the problem. Uh, Norway, where I'm reside, is one of the biggest gas exporters in the world. 
we had long-term contracts with Europe, or not we, but the oil companies had long-term contracts linked to oil at a discount. So like, typically like the Asians are buying today. There's not really a LNG crisis in Japan or China or South Korea because all their supply is linked to oil with a discount of 20-25%. So while <laughs> they are pay- we are paying in Europe, let's say today, close to $200 of barrel of oil equivalent, they are paying $70. So we had these contracts in Europe as well. And then the European Commission said this is anti-competition. And they forced a breakup of existing contracts because they wanted to have a spot price on all the contracts. And Europe saved a lot of money for 10 years on this because the spot price was much lower than what the oil price index would have made, especially in COVID. In 2020, the price of LNG in Europe or TTF gas was breaking below $1 per million BTU, which is equivalent to $6 per barrel of oil. (laughs) This year, it's gone up to more than 100 and now they are saying they want to have price caps and they want to renegotiate contracts. This is not really a way to have policy and kind of predictability for the actors in the industry to invest. If policies are changing depending on market developments all the time, how are you going to invest? If you're going to invest in an LNG export plant today, you basically need to have a horizon of 25 years. You probably need to set aside five years to develop and finance and get the project going. And then you need at least 20 years to sell cargoes in order for this economics to work. But then if you have these kind of changes in policy all the time, how are you going to cope with it? And that's the problem, I think, in in Europe. You need to kind of, if you have, you have to be a bit more longer term. But then if you're saying that everything's going to be carbon neutral in 2050 it's i i can understand that the utilities are not signing up on new contracts and then there's not going to be more supply so who are going to sign up on those contracts are we going to leave it then only to shell bp exxon and they are taking the risk that europe will be reliant on buying the spot markets uh, cargo could very well be but uh, you're not incentivizing a lot of new projects by doing it this way rather you know you should have like european buyers going to us and signing up 20 million tons signing up 20 million tons from qatar maybe 10 million tons from some of the African exporters and really doing a a, a much bigger because the russian flows we are replacing are huge (laughs) yeah and do you see other countries say outside of europe in asia South America taking advantage and saying, well, we're, we want to sign longer term contracts to ensure some reliability of supply for us, even yeah. if Europe's being short sighted. Yeah, even with uh, LNG imports down 20% plus in China this year, last 18 months of the 100 million tons of new SPAs, China has done 50% of it. So they are certainly signing up uh, a lot of new contracts and they are, have been doing well on that. They signed up a lot of contracts after the trade war with with US as well and they have been reselling those cargoes into Europe because the, the beauty of the US cargoes are they, there's no destina- fully destination flexibility. So Chinese who are buying those at Henry Hub plus $3. So even if Henry Hub is $8, $11 for price, can sell those cargoes into Europe at $30, $40, whatever the price is. So they're making a fortune on it. But they are thinking 20, 25 years. They're not thinking today all the time. Right. And do you see, um, 
you know, private players doing that as well, where they're saying, well, we'll secure LNG at a a lower fixed price, and then we're going to take advantage of the optionality that we can resell it because we think there will be price spikes like this in the future. Yeah, yeah, these are the shells and Exxon and Chevron and and some of the trading houses like Trafigura and Gunvo, they are doing it as well because they see that the European buyers, they need gas, but they are not willing to sign up these long contracts. So they are buying portfolio of contracts. And then this is, of course, a bit more like the oil place. You know, Germany Inc. is not signing up 5 million barrels of oil from some countries. Basically, it's market participants doing it. Uh, so I'm not saying that the government should intervene to do it, but the problem is their policies and their signals to the market actors are resulting in them not signing up on something because they don't know whether there will be a market in 10 years' time. So kind of it's the problem for the government or the policymakers in Europe is more that a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty they are creating. Right. And even with the the talk of price caps now, private players aren't going to invest if they think that every time the price goes up and those investments begin to yeah, it's uh, very nice today you're pushing the bill to somebody else, but then let's say you are developing a gas field here in Norway now, and and usually almost everything has gone to pipe to Europe because it's very close situated. It's only one LNG export plant in, in Norway. It's very far in the north where the pipeline would be very long. But let's say you are in, investing in new projects today. Would you rather build a LNG plant instead of a pipeline? Probably because you don't know. If, if suddenly the price goes up and Europe is starting saying that they want to cap the price Hmm, wouldn't it be better than having an LNG plant where you can just ship that cargo to, to Asia? So, uh, you know, it's going to be good for, for me, which is in the LNG business. Uh, if everybody else, it, rather than building pipelines, they're building LNG plants instead. But it's not really the right policy. If you have a gas field short to market, pipeline is the most efficient. But for European politicians, they could very well undermine that by talking about these price caps. Right. And I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of the the investment in LNG infrastructure, clearly we've seen periods lately where there weren't enough ships, weren't enough regasification. And I'm curious, is the investment in LNG infrastructure responding or is this policy ambiguity stifling it too much? Like our order books for new ships growing? You know, what are your plans for growing your own fleet? Yeah, now I, as I mentioned, this new building price has gone from 180 to 250, and mm. actually the order book is more than 40 percent of the fleet, and then that should worry any shipping investors, uh, <laughs> including myself. There's a couple of reasons for this. It's uh, one thing is, of course, there's a lot of new projects. Qatar uh, have today uh, a nameplate capacity of their uh, exports of 77 million tons per year. They're going to first stage now increase it by 33 million ton and then maybe add 16 tons on top of that. So the Qatar is probably going to order 100 ships altogether. <laughs> so, uh, and then you have some new projects in US, especially Venture Global and Genier. They are pushing forward new projects. So, so there's a lot of new projects. Of course, it's not enough if, if Europe is going to replace all the gas from Russia with they can't replace everything with renewables. They need actually to replace most of it with gas. Uh, what we are doing in Europe now is replace it with spot LNG and a lot of coal, which is the opposite where we were planning. But So you need a lot of new ships for the new projects. 
So we have seen a lot of investment on the shipping side, but mostly almost all of those ships are built towards a new contract, so not on speculation. On the upstream part of the business, you would have thought it would be more. I think the problem is, as I mentioned, if you're doing these multi-billion dollar projects, you really need to have contract coverage for 70, 80, 90% of the volumes. Otherwise, it's too risky to give it the green light with the cost. And then when you have the player that should be signing up the most contracts, Europe not doing it, that makes you reliant on, on, on the super majors and the traders that they are signing up. But they can, you know, Europe should probably sign up 50, 60, 70, 80 million dollars, a million tons of LNG. And so far, they haven't done that. So that is holding back investment on the upstream parts somewhat. With this kind of this kind of huge challenge you have, replacing pipeline gas from Russia with LNG, and also getting rid of coal in Europe, then investments should actually be, be bigger in my, in my, my mind. Yeah, and that brings me to you know the final question I wanted to ask you. And I think we've touched on parts of this, but you know, looking beyond this winter and out over the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, as the CEO of a LNG company, like what do you need to do your part in providing reliable, affordable energy to Europe and to the world? Yeah, it's <laughs> our business is basically to, to transport the LNG to the market, which is willing to pay the highest price. Of course, we are not instructing our ships where to go, actually. It's, every fixture in, in LNG is a time charter. So the guy renting the, the ship, they will instruct where to load the cargo and where to discharge. And this is up to market forces, which it should be. What we are delivering is the most efficient ships. So we, all Arturian ships built between 2018 and 2021 are the most efficient with the most modern diesel engines. So, so that is, as I mentioned, resulting in the efficiency of these ships compared to the older ships has been increased 60%. So, so that is all part of the value change. And we have built all our ships on speculation, actually. So we haven't built them towards contracts. We have thought that these are really good ships prices are good. Let's invest two and a half billion dollars in these ships and let's see if we can fix them out. <laughs> it takes usually three years to build an LNG ship. Right now, lead time is more like four, four and a half years. And then I actually, I listened to one of your podcast recently, which was with uh, Jeff Curry and Goldman Sachs, which I've talked to in, in the past. And he had a very good point because it's, there are some similarities today. We have this inflation. Yesterday was US CPI numbers still above 8%. So inflation is high. And of course, inflation today, as back in the 70s, is driven a lot by energy. People thought energy was irrelevant. It was so small part of GDP. <laughs> energy uh, companies in the S&P index gone, went from 15% of the market cap to, I believe, they were down to 3%. So a kind of energy was this dinosaur, old industry that nobody really thought much about. Now with energy prices coming up, we do see how important energy is and having uh, you know reliability of uh, supply and also affordability and then we has, he mentioned something about you know when inflation came down by Paul Walker he questioned was it Paul Walker who did it or was it the capex boom in the oil industry after oil price took off after the the OPEC crisis in in the 70s and it's a bit i think we are at exactly the same point in time today we have high inflation because of high energy prices, especially in Europe when it comes to gas. And how are we going to drive down inflation? 
it's a capex boom in LNG. <laughs> so that's what you have to create. I don't think people in Europe are willing to start doing shale. They don't even are willing to take out more gas from the Gröningen gas field because house owners don't like it. So if, if, they don't, if you don't want to use that gas resource, then you need LNG. So you need a capex boom in LNG much bigger than we are seeing today. We are seeing quite rapid growth on the LNG upstream part. I mentioned there's a lot of ships for construction, but it's not big enough because the challenge we are facing is much bigger than people are realizing. We're trying now to patch it up with some gas subsidies, caps, but this is a much bigger problem. We have to start thinking 10, 15, 20 years, and then we need more LNG, but also the LNG industry also need to to start decarbonize. So, of course, CO2 emissions, replacing coal with natural gas, you reduce it 50-60%. But there's a big problem, and it's the methane emissions. need to They need to be reduced to close to zero. And that's, people say it's difficult, but it's, it's possible. Equinor has reduced methane emissions to virtually nothing in their value change. So it's about kind of, I think, you know, you should have a price on, on methane as well. So getting methane emissions down, and then also on the upstream part, are you electrifying it in order to bring down emissions on the upstream part? I think you every upstream project today have to start thinking about CO2 capture. So you are capturing the CO2 during that process. And then we also need to start thinking about the CO2 capture when you're burning the natural gas. Because if you are managing to do that, you have basically made CH4, which is methane, into hydrogen. So you have been able then to create hydrogen in a much easier way than burning hydrogen because that's <laughs> complex and inefficient process. And for our part, I think, you know, we're happy to invest in that story. But right now, um, with the LNG new building prices at 250 and all the ambiguity about policy, we are sitting on the fence like a lot of other people in the industry. Thanks again to Ostein Kelleklev, CEO at Flex LNG and Executive Chairman at Avance Gas. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week with Greg Chernow, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager for Commodities and Real Assets at PIMCO. We'll be discussing the energy crisis, inflation, and what it all means for investors. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. 
Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Avax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.